Act Three, A Will to Power. Caroline dreamt she was holding the gun to her temple and applying almost enough pressure to the trigger. It was her mantra, and it was soothing. She would feel the cold steel barrel caress her temple. The gun felt heavy and powerful, but she was more so, and she was not her mother. She told herself as she turned it out toward the world. She paused, welcoming all imaginary takers, and then began the mantra again until she fell asleep. She did this every night of the first six months she was bound with primitive lashings in the Indian village. The night she was taken, they traveled north and then west to support the story that they were based in the Oklahomas. They rode hard for four hours and only stopped when they had a vantage behind them to see how far back they were being followed. They agreed that the horses given to them were strong and well-rested, but also that they would need at least four more to ride for days north before turning back south. They saw a fire to the east and rode toward that beacon, finding a camp of three field workers who thought they had no reason to worry. The smaller of the two men gagged Caroline and hobbled the horses close enough that she would be able to hear the men scream. They walked and then crawled toward the men and sprang on two of them from behind, smashing their heads with heavy rocks and then climbing over them, scrambling in a contest toward the third, who made it to his gun just in time for them to tackle him and shove the barrel up under his chin. The fire exploded into his neck and the blood covered them. Caroline couldn't see the red of the blood in the night, but she knew the six horses they led toward her didn't like the smell of it. Together, they lashed her hands and legs around the back of one of the fresh horses and pulled off fast to put distance between them and the sound of the gun. They rode through the night, never slowing, and although she could see little, Caroline could feel the thud of every gallop and the stinging lash of every mesquite branch or prickly pear the horse moved to avoid but didn't leave room for her. By morning, she was cut across the backs of her legs and her shoulders and had lost blood. Mid-morning, they stopped at a creek which she did not recognize. She knew they were north, maybe further than she had ever been. She could smell the creek was alkaline, but other than that, all she knew was the pain. She silently hoped maybe they would let her in the creek and that it would soothe her lacerated skin. The men left her straddling the horse, and they drank and let the other horses drink, and then hurt a calf which had become separated from its mother. The smaller of the two men motioned for the other to remain with the horses and made his way up the embankment of the creek. He found the calf and held it down as he drew the knife, which he had taken from the workers, across its neck. He returned down the embankment and directed the other man and the horses up the stream and around the bend where the calf lay. They set to cutting into the calf's stomach and using their hands to scoop out the curdled milk in it. They did this greedily until the one who had killed the calf brought cupped hands full of curdle to Caroline and held it to her face. The smell sickened her, but she ate the curdle and held it down only briefly before getting sick. Not wanting to serve her, the larger of the two men loosened her from the horse's back and let her fall to the ground. 
The other cut out the calf's liver and soaked it in blood before throwing it to her. Caroline chewed it into small pieces and was able to keep it down. When they determined she had enough, they gagged her again, but let her ride upright to lessen the chance of her getting sick again. They rode through the day and night, only stopping to switch horses. On the second morning, after two days of riding harder than Caroline would have previously believed possible, they stopped and made camp at a river with which they were obviously familiar. They hobbled the horses and untied Caroline from hers, letting her fall to the ground and paying little attention to her. Her legs were covered in cuts from the undergrowth and were swollen and sore. She could not walk, but she could crawl toward the sound of the water and she could hear the men killing the oldest of the horses. They assumed they were followed, and after putting themselves enough miles ahead, the men would set their decoy and make their real escape. Anyone familiar with the hill country would be able to follow their trail, but just in case their pursuers were incompetent, they started a fire in the middle of the day, which they would also use to cook the old nag and produce sufficient meat for the remainder of their trip. They boned and then sliced the rump of the nag back and forth in layers until the strips were three feet in length, and then hung the strips between stakes suspended over the fire. The meat cooked in the fire and smoke while the two men pulled out the intestines and blew water from the stream through them to clean them, and then tied one end and filled them swollen with water. With their work done, they pulled Caroline up from the soothing water of the stream and tied her to a tree so they and the horses could sleep a little. When the sun was at its midpoint, they woke, put a large log on the fire, and headed north 60 miles until they came to a smaller creek which was rocky with little sand and ran to the east. They crossed that creek and then doubled back to it via a feeder and walked in its shallows, headed east for half a day. They made it far enough without leaving a single track before climbing the creek's south bank and heading straight south again for a full day, and then west only at night. They stopped at a high vantage point five miles short of the trail they had originally taken north and waited under a mott of live oaks. Caroline slept tied to a tree, and after they had eaten, they fed her the dried horse meat and took turns sleeping themselves. It was a full day before they saw that some twenty men were following their original trail. They waited until the dust cloud was a half day to the north before they mounted again. Only then did they see two more figures coming from the south, following the trail. From that distance, they could not have seen that it was the sheriff and his deputy, nor did they care. They let them pass in the same manner as the colonel's men, and then pushed west as hard as they had gone north knowing that they had enough meat and water to not need to stop again until they made it to the canyon. The soldiers' horses trampled the Indians' tracks, which made it easier for the sheriff and the deputy to follow. 
Neither man was fluent in the survival skills of the two Indians, and they were outnumbered and outgunned by the soldiers. Thus, their quest to find Caroline was poorly suited and destined for failure. But for lack of another option, they pushed their horses forward, stopping as often as the horses needed. On the third day, they finished the food they had brought and resorted to eating the prickly pears which were ripe and covered in stink bugs. They skinned the pears and fed them to the horses, who ate them greedily. The sheriff was morose, and that worried the deputy, but less so than his concern about his inability to reason with the man. He assumed the colonel's trained soldiers knew they were being followed, but could not get a response from the sheriff when he asked what they were to do in a fight. He also knew that as they moved further north, the pears and springs of water would become less common. He could not get the sheriff to respond to that eventuality. Then, on the morning of the eleventh day, when they were still south of Wichita Falls, his horse threw one of its shoes, and he tried to use this event as a pivot to reason. We need more men and supplies if we're going to find her. The sheriff sat slumped on his horse while the deputy walked beside his. I need you to respond. Supplies ain't going to get her back. The deputy chose his words carefully. At this pace, we can't keep up with him. Then go back. We can leave my horse to graze, but yours will carry us both only so far. Go back. Exhausted, the deputy was about to make his thoughts known plainly when they both heard the crack of a high-caliber rifle and then jumped at the whine of a bullet flying between them. They looked up to see six of the colonel's men silhouetted on a ridge some 500 yards to the northwest. The sheriff nudged his horse in their direction. They missed on purpose. As they crested the ridge, they saw the last of the soldiers heading down the opposite side. Mr. Stone had them take a wide path so no words would be exchanged. He waited alone atop his Tennessee walker. At the edge of the ridge, looking to the north, the sheriff pulled up next to him. We lost their trail 40 miles north, a little past that creek, he said, pointing. We're good at this, but they're better. How hard did you look? You know who I answered to. The sheriff said nothing. Ain't really your fault. If I hadn't burned it down, we wouldn't be here. Remember what I told you about our arrogance. Colonel needed to find out who those two worked for. He didn't, though. No, he didn't. Because it turns out they ride like Indians from the Old West. They sat silently, looking at the creek in the distance. And that's what I'm going to tell him. Mr. Stone knew the sheriff would push on despite the odds. He untied the rucksack that hung from the right of the walker and dropped it to the ground. There's MREs for days, he said as he turned his horse and headed down the hill, nodding to the deputy as he passed him. The deputy did his best to convince the sheriff that they couldn't do what the soldiers couldn't, that they should return to town form a well-provisioned search party and send word to the sheriff in Tulsa, who would surely know more about the men since they came from there. He said all that and made cases for other ideas. All were the opposite of the path to which the sheriff was committed. 
The sheriff listened in silence and then convinced the deputy to take half of the MREs and head back to make good on his ideas. The deputy wound down the hill to the south. The sheriff stood on the cliff at the edge of the ridge, looking north past the creek, past where their tracks ended. As they rode, the limestone of the eastern hill country was replaced by the granite of the western hill country. Monolithic rocks dotted the landscape, having fallen from plateaus when they could no longer sustain their own weight. And then, beyond those hills, they entered the plains which swallowed them as if they had ridden into an ocean. The conquistadors had feared these plains for just that reason. No tree or rock or natural formation could be seen in any direction. There was little water and few animals for 40,000 square miles. But the two men waded confidently into the heart of the arid plains. Two days in, they loosened Caroline's bonds and more carefully measured their demands of the horses so as to pace them and avoid injury. They rationed the water and food and spoke little as they rode through the vastness and knee-high grass and consistent wind. And then, on a day that seemed no different to Caroline than the score before it, they came to a pile of stones. Turning over the ones on top, they found a stick that pointed the way. They followed that direction for a day to another pile, and then half a day to the next, and then a quarter of a day. And at that last one, they stopped and one let out as loud a whoop as he could, and the other, then the first again. They did this, and then waited until a pair or three or four whoops were carried back on the wind. Caroline squinted in the burning dryness of the wind and the noises, and it seemed to her as if three figures on horseback had drawn themselves up and out of the flat earth and were riding toward them. Her eyes were swollen, almost shut, and the figures were as a mirage. The riders drew closer and embraced the two men, and approved of Caroline as if she were a trophy. They gave the men water from the leather sacks, slapped their shoulders, and then rode beside them in the direction from which they came. As they rode, Caroline saw cracks starting to appear in the ground beneath her horse, and then off in the distance she could see the opposite of a mountain range. The flat plains split open into a canyon that grew wider the closer they got, until it appeared that in the middle of the ocean of grass there was a canyon that went further than she could see. The walls of the canyon were steep enough to ensure death, so the men assumed a single line as they descended a trail which clung to the walls of the canyon and discarded its loose rocks to below. The riders' horses were confident, but those of the two men and Caroline needed to be guided from ahead and driven from behind. Once or twice, a hoof would slip, and the rider behind the nervous horse would bolster it with the neck of his to urge it on. Caroline, the prisoner, felt as if she were descending into the earth. And then it was. And the girl who had been in the company of the two men for weeks 
and who had hoped in vain that they would be trailed and her rescued, saw hundreds of men, women, and children moving toward their party. Whoops arose among the crowd, and then back and forth between it and the riders, until the crowd surrounded them, and the two men were pulled from their horses and embraced by any man who could reach them. The women and children flocked to Caroline, and one of the riders had to hold her horse from kicking in defense. They grabbed at her and pulled her down and into their mass, talking, stroking her hair, tugging her in all directions, until an older woman scolded them and beat them back with a stick. She pointed in the direction she wanted their efforts focused, and the crowd of women and children carried Caroline in that direction, away from the men. They took her to a creek that had dug itself into the canyon floor and tossed her into the narrow but deep cut and then waded in after her. The woman yelled for the children to bring the dried yucca, which they reconstituted with water from the stream and then used to lather up Caroline's body and clean the many abrasions which had become encrusted with sweat and dust. The children watched as the women worked on her with one hand and held her tight with the other. Caroline was clearly weakened, but they knew she was as a cornered animal, and none wanted to lose an ear or the tip of their nose to the gnash of Caroline's teeth. The banks of the creek were lined with salt cedar. The older children were sent to collect kindling and light firewood, while the youngest stayed on the banks to gather the dried boughs of salt cedar. The boughs were as light as hair, but full of oil and would catch fire before anything else. Under the watchful eye of an older woman who leaned on a branch cane, the children rolled the dried boughs into balls and then placed them next to each other. Atop the balls, they arranged a teepee of kindling and strips of dried bark as thin as paper. On top of that, they constructed another teepee of the light wood. Two of them bowed down on their knees on opposite sides of the pile and struck pieces of chert against each other, sending sparks onto the salt cedar boughs. Next to each was a second child who blew life into the sparks as soon as they landed on the boughs. When the fire had made its way up through the teepee of kindling and bark and had caught hold of the wood, the children laughed and danced around it until the older woman shooed them with her walking stick. They teased her by sticking their tongues out and making rude noises, but retreated quickly when she raised the stick above her head. When they left, she lowered the stick to prod and collapse the fire, and then, from within her shawl, she produced two metal pins, which she lay on the coals. She blew life into the coals, as the children had done, and when ready, signaled for the bathing women to bring Caroline to her. They didn't bother to dry Caroline, but rather wrapped her tightly in a buffalo hide. She could not move her arms, and they held her still as the older woman removed the red-hot ends of the pins from the fire and pierced Caroline's ears with them. She screamed and kicked at first, but that seemed to be the last of her resistance. As the older woman looped leather strings through the piercings, Caroline lay there, and when they turned her over to pierce the ears, a second time she fell asleep, exhausted.
You've been listening to New West Hill Country. You can find more episodes, audiobooks, art, and social channels at newwestseries.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review and share this. New West Hill Country is independent, original storytelling, and we appreciate your supporting us by spreading the word.